Are you eager to learn more about law? Me too. Hello, my name is Sarah Chayo. Welcome to A Question of Law, a podcast created for law enthusiasts who want to increase their knowledge and deepen their understanding of the law. Our guests, legal professionals chosen from an array of legal proficiencies, will explain to us the fundamental principles of a specific topics in the areas of expertise. Then, they will educate us on new legal developments in their fields in the form of a recent case law or new legislation. They'll share with us their opinions on the ramifications of these latest advances. Finally, we'll talk about their career path and uncover some great insights about their lives and experiences. So, if you want to feed your curiosity, enrich your mind and get inspired. Take a break, sit back and remain tuned in. On this edition of A Question of Law, we will be talking with our guest, Toby Catman, about war, crimes, accountability, victims and deterrence. Despite a multitude of forums where states can interact and exchange, conflicts have still proliferated over the last 70 years. Modern conflicts are less frequently wars between states and more often civil wars that oppose the government in charge to dissident groups with sometimes the intervention of neighboring states. The consequences, however, are always the killing, torturing, raping, displacement and other forms of atrocities inflicted mostly to the civilian population. Since the Second World War, the egregious creativity of the perpetrators, often state officials, military officers or armed group leaders, has resulted in an increased willingness from the international community to see them being held accountable. This resulted in the development of a body of law, international criminal law, which deals with accountability for these crimes. After the establishment of ad hoc tribunals created to deal with specific conflicts, the persistent recurrence of war atrocities called for the establishment of a more permanent institution. The International Criminal Court, ICC, started its mission in 2002. The treaty which formed the institution, the Rome Statute, sets out the scope and the crimes on which the court has jurisdiction. These crimes include war crimes, which are a grave breach of the law of war and can consist of the killing of prisoners of war, civilians, enrollment of child soldiers, rape, torture, crimes against humanity, which are attacks purposely and systematically committed against civilians. Genocide, which are crimes committed against a specific group in order to destroy it based on ethnical, national, racial or religious grounds, and the crime of aggression. However, establishing an international criminal court that bears the hope of fighting impunity, providing justice for victims and deterring future crimes has proven a long and challenging task. Despite the 123 countries which have ratified the statute, the ICC has been the object of many criticisms. 
This edition offers a realistic assessment of the court's achievement to date and a reflection on the political realities that surround it. Let's start. Hello, Toby. Welcome to A Question of Law. I'm both delighted and honored to have you on this podcast. Thank you for accepting my invitation. Thank you very much. It's a, a pleasure to be on here and, and to be able to talk. <laughs> Toby, you are a human rights barrister specialized in humanitarian law and international criminal law. After her prestigious career in human rights, spanning over almost two decades, and which brought you to Bosnia-Herzegovina, the Criminal Prosecution Service, and 9 Bedford Road Chamber, you founded your own practice in 2016, Guernica 37, based in London. Guernica 37 is a barrister chamber which aims at helping states recover and transform after a period of crisis, dictatorship or conflict. This leads you to travel the world to advise states and defend or prosecute individuals accused of international crimes in various courts. Your expertise is recognized worldwide. You often appear on TVs such as TRT World or Al Jazeera, to name a few, to share your expertise on international criminal law, which is exactly the subject I'd like to discuss with you today. So maybe we should start with you explaining to us what international criminal law is. Well, the term international criminal law is very broad in its application and International criminal law in the field in which I work is primarily aimed towards crimes such as war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. And what we've seen over the years is a development of treaty law. We've seen a development of customary international law and a development of the practice of international tribunals. And so when we think about international criminal or international humanitarian law, we think about the, the starting point with the Nuremberg and Tokyo military tribunals uh, at the end of the Second World War, and how those principles developed, how the legal framework um, developed, and then how institutions like the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda were developed and how the law was developed. And I think one of the important things to remember is that the law is a living instrument. It changes over time. So, for example, there have been developments through the work of the International Criminal Tribunals former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, and those institutions that followed. And now we have the first permanent international criminal court in The Hague that was established under the, the Rome Statute, where we now have a set of principles um, set in a statute that is binding on a large number of countries, obviously not all countries, but is binding on many parts of the world now. Mm -hmm. Could you give us a short summary of the historical context which surrounded the creation of the first ad hoc tribunals and which led later to the creation of the International Criminal Court, the ICC? Absolutely. So I think you have to go back to the, the ad hoc tribunals of the, of the early and mid-90s, where the, the way that we addressed violations of international humanitarian law, whether they were as part of the conflict in the Balkans, the Rwandan genocide, we then saw what happened in Sierra Leone, East Timor, 
And we also saw the emergence of an institution or a judicial body to deal with crimes committed in Cambodia in the 1970s. Um, And so there was this desire to create an institution, a body of law that would have almost a universal application. And so there were a number of individuals. If you look at Benjamin Ferenz, for example, Ben is the last surviving Nuremberg prosecutor. And he had spent a great deal of time and effort in trying to push the notion of having a permanent international criminal court. So it was not going to be a court created by UN Security Council resolution to deal with a particular situation. It would be a court that would deal with conflicts around the world and that it would deal with the most serious perpetrators of atrocity crimes. And once there were a sufficient number of states that signed up to it, then the the treaty would become law and the institution would in fact be formed. And so in 1998, the treaty was effectively signed. And so since that time, a number of states have signed up to that where you will see that it effectively sort of started its work in the early 2000s and has really gained much more prominence in the last few years. There are, of course, difficulties. There are limitations to jurisdiction. It's important to note that unlike the other tribunals that had been previously established, the ICC is not a creature of the United Nations. It doesn't form part of the United Nations. The only connection to the United Nations is through the United Nations Security Council that can refer situations to the court. But I think that one of the things that is not always understood is, as well as the wide reach of the of the court, there are, of course, limitations in that there are um, countries that have refused to sign up or ratify um, the Rome Statute and become a become a state party. So you have, for example, the United States. The United States has consistently refused to join the ICC for a number of different reasons. And this is not just through the times of Bush and then Trump, but even, even during the time of Obama. You have China, India, Israel. So you have a number of uh, important and powerful states that uh, have refused to be signed up to it. Yes, and I think we might talk later about uh, whether it's still possible to apply international criminal law to perpetrators of crimes in these countries. But before we get to this, could you please describe to us how the ICC functions, so who can refer a case to the court for which crimes, and who can be addicted by the court's prosecutor? Certainly. So when you look at the, the Rome Statute, you will see that... It sets out uh, a number of different crimes. So you have genocide, you have crimes against humanity, you have war crimes, you have torture and other inhumane um, acts. So there are uh, a number of different types of crimes. And then you would have murder, slavery, enforced disappearance that are the substantive crimes that, depending upon the context, can either be a war crime or a crime against humanity. You also have one of the one of the issues that has been of some significance is the crime of aggression. And that has more recently become an important 
additional area in which the ICC has jurisdiction. Now, that was as a result of an amendment to the statute um, that was formed. And now a sufficient number of states have ratified that for that to become law. So it doesn't mean that for something which has happened in the past, there can be an investigation um, for the crime of aggression. But moving forward, once that new crime becomes a crime within the jurisdiction of the court, then future acts of aggression can in fact be prosecuted. Now, in terms of who can be prosecuted, in order to answer that question, you have to to look at how the court can exercise jurisdiction and over whom. So, for example, if a state ratifies the Rome Statute, all persons of that state and its territory falls within the jurisdiction of the court. So if an allegation is made that a crime has been committed on that state's territory, or a crime has been committed on another state's territory, but by a national of that country, then the court can effectively exercise jurisdiction. And it's important to to note that the court, as with any international tribunal, it does not prosecute states, it does not prosecute organisations, it does not prosecute political parties, what it prosecutes is individuals. Individuals who have criminal responsibility for crimes under the statute. So it can be a political leader, it can be a military leader, and as we've seen over time, there have been those from the political and the military leadership that have been prosecuted. It's also important to note that the court is what's called a court of last instance. So, and and this is important for two reasons. First of all, the court is there to only deal with the most serious crimes. So it is not there to prosecute everything. One of the criteria is the gravity of the crime, the gravity of the allegation. So it has to be a matter which is deserving of investigation and prosecution at the international level. And when we refer to it being a court of last instance, you have this policy called complementarity, which is effectively a a new principle in the international tribunals, which means that the court will defer to the national jurisdiction. So the national courts should investigate and prosecute crimes within the jurisdiction of the ICC. And the ICC would only deal with that matter, or effectively take over that matter, if the national authority was unwilling or unable to prosecute, and that the gravity threshold is asked for for prosecution at the international level. So I think it's important to note that the court only investigates and prosecutes individuals, not states, Mm -hmm. that it is only for the crimes that are set out under the statute. So we are dealing with what we would broadly characterize as atrocity or international crimes, such as war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. It is not there to prosecute uh, terrorism, organized crime. And there are a lot of other crimes that currently it's being argued that the ICC should have jurisdiction, which it does not have jurisdiction, such as environmental crimes and crimes that relate to climate. So There are a number of crimes that are outside of its jurisdiction, but of course, it can, over time, 
um, change and, and adapt to the environment. Um, so, for example, one of the one of the matters that is being called to look upon at the moment is where starvation is used as a war crime. Mm-hmm. So, so, I think it's important to look at that and also um, corporate responsibility for for crimes and crimes against humanity is another matter in which increasingly the international community is being forced to address. But of course, it doesn't deal with what are domestic crimes, domestic murders, domestic acts of violence. Mm -hmm. So you have already touched on some of the limitations of the court's jurisdiction, and you have mentioned that to be bound by the court's authority, states must not only have signed, but also ratified the Rome Statute. This can potentially allow some states to never sign up to the court's authority or withdraw from it when it's convenient for them. For example, when they know that some of their officials have committed acts which could fall under the court's investigation. Could you tell us more about those kind of limitations and how, in some cases, they have been circumverted? So you have a a situation in particular where... Uh, many of the the worst conflicts that we've seen um, in recent years um, fall outside of the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. So, for example, if we look at the conflict in Syria, that is a situation which the ICC has no jurisdiction. And it has no jurisdiction because Syria is not a state party. So it has refused to, to ratify the, the Rome Statute. And the only way that the ICC could exercise jurisdiction is in this other principle, which is a referral by the United Nations Security Council. So the United Nations Security Council has the mandate and jurisdiction to to refer a situation. And it's important to recognize what this means. They refer a situation. They don't refer an individual or a particular crime, but they will refer a situation to the International Court for investigation. Mm -hmm. And so one of the examples of that, or two examples that we can look at, is Darfur and and Libya, uh, two situations that were referred to the International Criminal Court. The difficulty that you have is that each of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council has the ability to veto any referral to the International Criminal Court. Mm -hmm. So if we look at the situation of Syria that I personally and Guernica have um, developed and dedicated a considerable amount of time to over the last 10 years, the the reason why that situation has not been referred to the International Criminal Court is because both Russia and China have consistently vetoed any attempt to refer the situation to the ICC. And so that has caused a major stumbling block. Now, Russia is an active participant in the conflict in Syria, supporting the Syrian regime. And so Russia knows very well that if they were to refer the situation to the ICC, they could, in fact, come under investigation themselves. And so it it has identified a flaw in the referral system at the UN Security Council. And one of the things that we have advocated for is for that to be reformed so that the permanent members cannot block a referral to the International Criminal Court. Unfortunately, that is still some time away from happening. You also have the situation in Yemen. 
you had the situation in Myanmar. So Myanmar would be blocked by China. And we also have the situation of what is now being labelled as a potential genocide of the Uyghur population in China. And of course, because China is not a member of the ICC, that situation cannot be referred to the ICC. But there is a backdoor in ensuring that there is a measure of accountability for situations such as this. And it was first identified in relation to the situation in Myanmar concerning the the genocide against the Rohingya. Mm-hmm. And in this particular situation, the prosecutor identified that the crime of forcible deportation is a crime that is committed on two states, where the crime starts and where the crime ends. So in the situation of the Rohingya, half a million Rohingya refugees were forced out of Rakhine State and into neighbouring Bangladesh. Bangladesh is a member of the International Criminal Court. And so the prosecutor petitioned a pretrial chamber for a ruling on whether she could exercise jurisdiction on this particular narrow ground. Our group was one of, I think, five groups that filed an amicus brief. So an advisory opinion we we filed with the court stating that there was jurisdiction in such a circumstance. And the, the court agreed with us. We were actually the only legal group that identified that this principle could also apply to the situation in Syria, in that one and a half million Syrian civilians had been forced out of Syria into neighbouring Jordan, and Jordan is a state party. And so in early 2019, our group filed uh, the first of three submissions to the ICC prosecutor, inviting her to investigate the situation in Syria based on this principle. And that principle has now been extended to other conflicts. A legal group has also filed one in relation to to the Uyghur by saying that because of the, the nature of the crimes occurring outside of China, the ICC has jurisdiction for that as well. So it's it's opened up a new theory of accountability for international crimes where there are very serious limitations. That's a very good example of how the law evolved and adapt to its environment and the role that lawyers and judges also play in moulding it. The ICC is also limited by other factors in the exercise of its functions. First, the way it is financed, and secondly, and more importantly, the fact that it requires the cooperation of state parties to investigate the crimes, secure the evidence, and arrest the alleged criminals because the court does not have its own police force. Can you tell us about the difficulties the ICC faces whilst exercising its functions and what role has this played on the efficiency of the court? Well, I think there are two points that that need to be addressed. The first of them is the the finances, uh, the resources of the institutions. And so because the ICC is effectively funded by states, it's important to be able to identify where the problem lies. States have been quite prepared to criticise the ICC for its failures in dealing with accountability and for the fact that it spent over a billion 
dollars, probably close to $2 billion. And its success, the measure of its success is limited. But states need to recognise that in order for the institution to succeed, it needs to be properly funded. And I think that is one of the, the serious failings of the international community is that it has not funded the, the institution sufficiently for it to be able to do its job properly. And so some responsibility has to come on the international community, the, the state's parties. And it's, you know, it is recognised that trials of this kind take many years and are very expensive. You can't do this on, on a small budget. It takes a great deal of money to do this. The counter-argument is, well, would it not be better to spend that money developing the judicial system in that country? Mm-hmm. And I think there does need to be a balance between the two. But it's not something that has been appropriately addressed so far. Looking at the second part, and that's the cooperation and how that impacts on the ICC's ability to operate effectively. And I think that is a very serious problem. If we if we look at the, the situation in Sudan, for example, and if we look at al-Bashir, who was indicted for genocide in particular many, many years ago, and then was out of reach of the institution, and he was effectively protected not not just by his own regime, but by other African states that didn't want to be seen to be cooperating with the ICC, which quite often was regarded as being an anti-African court and had adopted a policy of bias. However unsustainable such an argument is, it's something which has carried through a number of African states. And so it effectively provided a level of protection to al-Bashir and it is only due to a very recent change in the political leadership in Sudan that we may now see al-Bashir prosecuted and ultimately handed over to the ICC. But it does show that when you don't have a global police force and when you don't have proper consequences for failing to cooperate with the ICC, then you will always have this ability for fugitives to remain out of the reach of the institutions. And that ultimately impacts on victims' right to see justice. Absolutely. To carry on with the assessment of the court, the ICC has received a great deal of criticism. A significant number of African countries have felt, as you mentioned earlier, that the ICC was targeting them. Israel became very uncomfortable with the court when Palestine became a state party and requested an investigation to start on the occupied territories. And as you mentioned too, the US administration believed that the court might want to target them due to their strong foreign policies. The court has been accused of being too politicized and biased in the choices of the cases the prosecutor investigates. What is your view on those arguments and what do you think should be done to reduce political interferences in judicial matters? Well, it's very difficult to remove any politicization from the process. What you have to understand as a starting point is that war crimes are by their very nature uh, political. And there is always a risk when you deal with a matter that you'll be accused of political engineering, that you are effectively supporting one side of the conflict. And if we look back through history, many of the institutions that have been created 
it's almost that it is the the winners of a conflict prosecute the losers of the conflict. Mm. And we've seen that in a number of different institutions over the years. Um, I'll give what I think is the perfect example of Bangladesh. So in 1971, there was a war of liberation mm-hmm. where East and West Pakistan separated, which effectively became a Pakistan versus India conflict um, as it drew to a close. There are allegations that anywhere between 300,000 and 3 million people were killed. And so it, it was something that needed to be addressed by way of a, a judicial response. And, and in 1974, the International Commission of Jurors had recommended that an international tribunal should be set up. But nothing was done to address accountability over 40 years until the ruling party in Bangladesh in 2009 decided to set up this International Crimes Tribunal. And the problem was that there was a provision that did not permit them to prosecute those who had fought for the liberation of Pakistan. They would only prosecute those that resisted or fought against liberation. So the process became very political. And as a result, that institution internationally has no credibility at all. And when you talk about international accountability mechanisms, Bangladesh is always excluded because that was considered to be a political process. So I think you have to understand that there is always that risk. The examples that you mention with the ICC are particularly interesting to look at because quite often what we find is that those that are accused or those that make the accusation of bias and unfair treatment are making the argument because they're being targeted for having committed serious violations of international humanitarian law. So if we look at the situation with the African states and the allegation that the ICC is biased. The question that has to be asked is, were there conflicts in those states that necessitated an international investigation? And the answer to that is, yes, there was. Very clearly there was, that required an international investigation. There was no willingness or ability at the national level to deal with it. So the international tribunal had to step in. Was it right that the ICC focused almost exclusively their investigations on Africa rather than elsewhere? No, it wasn't right. But the the impunity gap is never a particularly strong argument to make. You know, you can't prosecute us because you're not prosecuting them. I mean, it, that's not an argument that can reasonably be made. So I think you have to understand that, yes, there was an over-concentration on Africa, and it should not have occurred in that way. But obviously, we have to learn from that and ensure that the prosecutor, first of all, is able to act independently and impartially and and make his or her own decisions on who to investigate and who to prosecute. But at the same time, there has to be a notion that those decisions are based on transparent criteria and that they can be challenged if Mm -hmm. there is a question as to the legitimacy of the prosecutor's actions. Just to talk very quickly about two of the examples that that you mentioned, which is the United States, as far as Afghanistan is concerned, and the situation with Israel and Palestine. I think it's important to note that in both of those circumstances, the ICC is exercising its jurisdiction lawfully. It is not overreaching. It is not expanding any notion of international law. 
Palestine has the right, and I fully support Palestine's right to to be a member of the International Criminal Court. So it has the right, and it is important because you know there have been breaches of international law consistently in the occupied territories for for the best part of the last four or five decades. And so it is important that if crimes are being committed, Mm -hmm. whether they are being committed by Israeli or Palestinian forces, or whether they're being committed by uh, militant groups, then it is important that they are prosecuted. I don't accept the argument made by Israel, and I wouldn't accept the argument made by Palestine if the contrary argument was being made that they're being unfairly targeted. The fact of the matter is that the ICC has jurisdiction over the occupied territories. If the Israeli forces who are occupying, illegally uh, occupying Palestine, have committed crimes under the jurisdiction of the ICC, then there should be prosecutions. And we should have confidence in that it will be done independently and impartially. And the same goes for the United States, in Afghanistan, the United Kingdom, in Iraq. If our forces have committed crimes, then they should be prosecuted. We, we can't adopt a selective approach to justice. So would it be fair to say that if the court follows this principle that it should look at a situation rather than a specific crime brought to its attention, this should curtail any attempt by a state party, for example, to manipulate the court's agenda, since the prosecutor will, in any case, look at atrocities committed on both sides? Well, I think that's right. In, in any conflict, these are committed on both sides. And so it is important that any investigation, whether it's in Palestine, uh, Syria, Yemen, or indeed somewhere in Europe, that it is important that they are not investigated with a view to identifying culpability by one side and victimization by the other. It is important to note that crimes are often committed by both sides or multiple sides to a conflict. So it is important that whoever has committed those crimes are held accountable. So if we look at the conflict in Syria as an example, crimes arguably have been committed in the majority by the Syrian regime with the support of Russia and Iran. But if it can be shown that crimes have been committed by other states, whether it's the uh, United Kingdom, the United States, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, whoever they may be, then they should all be prosecuted. And you have, you have the situation in Libya, where it is quite clear that crimes have been committed by the United Arab Emirates and potentially Egypt as well. They should also be investigated and prosecuted, not just those who are the original target of the investigation. Anyone who commits a crime must be investigated in order for that institution to have any legitimacy. Yes, absolutely. So we have addressed most of the issues that surround the ICC. Now, despite these criticisms, do you think the court can still play an essential role in the fight against impunity, particularly during ongoing conflicts, provide justice for the victims and contribute to foster peace in the world? Yes, I do. And I think one of the challenges which the court will face Uh, next year. So a new prosecutor will be elected towards the end of this year. And so the next prosecutor 
will come in and there will be a great deal of scrutiny of uh, his or her actions and what situations are prioritised. I think that there are a number of things that need to be done differently at the ICC. I am a advocate in favour, as I have always been, of the ICC. But I also believe that justice is best served in the communities where the crimes were committed. I strongly believe that where there is a particular situation, it is important to be able to to strengthen the national capacity to investigate and prosecute those crimes. But there will be those cases that are so serious, the allegations are so grave, that they need to be dealt with at the international level. There may be security concerns as to why they cannot be done on, on the national level. So I think that, yes, there is a very important role for the ICC to play, but I think it needs to be more engaged on promoting and developing national capacity. I think there needs to be greater engagement by victims and civil society, which is lacking at the ICC. And I think that states need to provide it with the funding so that it can actually do its job properly. Then it will have a very important role going forward. Yes, and the creation of new hybrid tribunals or chambers staffed with international and local judges might also play an important role as well. Yes, I agree. And I think one of the things that we've seen, certainly in the last couple of years, is the creation or the establishment of uh, investigative commissions or investigative mechanisms. So so we had the first one, the triple IM that was established uh, for Syria. Uh, then obviously we have one for Iraq and we have one as far as Myanmar is concerned. And so I think we're, we're probably going to see more of those bodies created. But I think the, the days of having ad hoc tribunals is probably at, at an end. I don't think we're going to be having so many international ad hoc tribunals created. There'll be more hybrid institutions established. So I think that you know that's probably what we will see in the future. But I think that certainly the investigative commissions under the auspices of the of the UN are something that increasingly we will we will see. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Now, we are pretty much at my last question, and this is about the debate that sometimes opposes peace and justice. Do you think that in some conflicts, the pursuit of international justice undermines or delays the effort to resolve the war and establish peace? Um, I don't agree with that. It's, It's something that I encountered when I was in Bosnia, and it is something which has repeatedly come up as far as Syria is concerned. I don't think you can have any notion of peace and stability without justice and accountability. If you look at the creation of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, as an example, that was created whilst the conflict was ongoing. And in many ways, it it could be seen to have played an important role in bringing the conflict to an end, or at least lessening the hostilities of the conflict. But I think one of the issues that you have to consider is the deterrent effect 
of, of justice. So, for example, if there was an international tribunal now for Syria, and if it had jurisdiction over all actors in Syria, would we now be approaching 11, 12 years of a conflict in which several hundred thousand people have been killed and more than half the pre-war population have been forced out of their homes, arrested, tortured or killed? So I think you have to understand that a judicial mechanism, a justice mechanism, can contribute to the bringing to an end of a conflict. And so I don't accept the argument that justice can interfere with peace. It's quite often used as a way to say that you can't have a peace agreement whilst there is the risk of prosecution. Yes, there is that risk. But I think that you have to look at the nature of the conflict in order to determine whether that will have an impact on the stability of that particular country. I totally agree with you. Toby, thank you so much for this highly insightful analysis of international criminal law. I have personally learned a great deal on a subject I'm fascinated with. But before I let you go, first, you might want to share your contact details. And secondly, I'd like to ask you the questions with which you end your own podcast. And that is, what does accountability mean to you? First of all, I'm happy to provide my contact details. I'm always happy to discuss these issues with others that have a common interest. In terms of what does accountability mean to me, I always ask that question of my guests on the Guernica Accountability Podcast because it's a, it's a very difficult question to answer and everyone so far has given a completely different answer. I think to me, it means giving a voice to victims. I think in... The, the way in which we find ourselves nowadays, there is a risk of victims becoming a voiceless population. Mm-hmm. And we tend to make decisions based on what we think will serve the best interest of victims without actually asking the victims what they are seeking from the process. So I think, for me, accountability and one of the reasons why I established Guernica uh, with my colleagues was precisely for that, to ensure that victims have a voice, that they have access to justice, and that they have somebody speaking out for their rights. And I think that, to me, is what accountability means. That's a beautiful answer. Thank you. Would you like to give your contact now? Sure. I'm more than happy for people to contact me on our Chambers website, which is uh, www.guernica.com. Guernica37.com and our nonprofit, which is www.guernicacenter.org via email. My email address is tobyc at guernica37.com. Direct messages through my Twitter, which is just at Toby Catman. Toby, you've been an amazing guest. Thank you very much for your time. And we'll speak soon as the next episode is a special edition all about the family man beside the barista. Thank you very much. See you there. The information contained on this episode is not to be interpreted as legal advice, but is provided for informative purpose only. Formal legal advice should be sought for any specific case. Our guests are presenting their personal opinions in the context of an informal conversation and do not speak on behalf of their employers, partners, contractors or clients. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of A Question of Law. Your engagement with the show is at the heart of its success, 
The show has already received a fantastic amount of support and I'm really thankful for this. But the challenge is to keep you, the audience, engaged and fascinated. So if you have appreciated the show, please let me know by tuning in for the next one, rating and sharing the episodes and leaving comments. So until the next question of law, keep well.